Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of adoration for God who speaks to us through his perfect and life-giving word and turn in your copy of scripture to Luke chapter 9 is where we are going to be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible in front of you, we would love for you to grab one of the blue Bibles that should be in a chair back near you and turn to page 867. If you're a guest with us today, we have for the last several months been walking through uh, Luke's gospel slowly but surely, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And you remember, if you were with us at the beginning, all the way back in Luke chapter 1, Luke told us why he wrote this gospel. He wrote it so that a man named Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. So if you wanted to subtitle this series through Luke's gospel, you might just simply say it is certainty about Christ. And we come to a text today, which is verses 18 through 27, that one commentator calls the highest point in all of Luke's gospel regarding the truth about Jesus Christ. It's a text that maybe for many of you is quite familiar. It's even one of the most famous teachings of Jesus Christ, and we hope it does bring us great good and strength and nourishment today as we study it together. So let me get us going by reading our text, and then I do want to pray uh, briefly for God to bless our study of his word, and then we will begin together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray once again. Well, Father, we do bow before you now, needing the life that your word alone can give the salvation that your Son alone offers. So help us, we pray, to crucify ourselves even as we listen to this word about the cross, that we would lay our lives, our hearts, our minds, our affections and souls upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that we would eagerly and expectantly hear this word that is for our good and for your glory, that you would help me to preach boldly and clearly as you have commanded me to do so, as a dying man who is unsure to ever preach again, for us to hear these words of life, as a people unsure to ever hear another sermon. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most famous and influential Presbyterian preachers of the late 20th century was a man named James Montgomery Boyce. And in 1986, he published a book titled Christ's Call to Discipleship, in which he wrote, there is a defect, even a fatal defect, in the life of the church in the 20th century. And it is a lack of true discipleship. In some circles, at least, there is very little genuine Christianity. Many fervently call him Lord, Lord, but they are not Christians. And over a decade later, he was asked if he still agreed with that diagnosis, with that assessment he had made as the 20th century came to its close. And he said, the situation is not better today. In fact, it's probably worse. What is the problem? We do not like this kind of teaching about discipleship. Prosperity? Yes. Victory? Sure. But suffering? Death? The cross, we do not like these things, yet there is no genuine Christianity without them. And it is a simple yet powerful diagnosis and assessment that we find in our text this morning. That there is no genuine Christianity, that there there is no real discipleship without the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. What that means for Jesus himself, what that also means for us as his people. So the simple big idea that we're going to find in our text this morning is that Christianity is all about a cross. As essential as letters are to spelling, numbers are to math, dates are to history, oceans are to geography, so is the cross of Christ to Christianity. And we're going to see its centrality and importance, again, not just For Christ, but for us. For he came on a mission with his eyes fixed ever firmly upon Calvary and calls us as his people to carry our cross each and every day. Christians are necessarily, joyfully, cross-centered people. So what we want to see first of all is who Jesus is. We want to know who Jesus is is in verses 18 through 20 and then verse 21 and 22. We want to see what Jesus must do. And in the remainder of the text, we want to hear what disciples must do. So if you weren't with us last week, let me make sure you understand the context of where we left off because it is quite important as to what we're going to look at today. You may remember if you were with us last week that in the first six verses, Christ gave his authority and his power to his 12 apostles and sent them out to preach and to heal. Their short-term mission trip was so successful that the ruler in Judea, King Herod, started hearing about all of this ministry going on in his midst. And so look back at the question he asked in verse 9. He said, Who is this about whom I hear such things? So who is this Jesus Christ that's being proclaimed? Who is this Jesus Christ by whom demons are being exercised and diseases are being cured? And that is the driving question of Luke's entire gospel. Who is Jesus? And we sketched out an answer as he goes and feeds the 5,000 people. But we're going to pick up 
the clearest revelation so far in Luke's gospel about who Jesus is in verse 18 through 20. For notice how verse 18 begins. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And if you've been with us throughout the last few months, you have probably noticed, because we've tried to emphasize it, how often in his ministry here on earth Jesus is found praying. But when Luke narrates a section that begins with Jesus praying, we can be quite certain that something significant is about to follow. Because when Jesus is praying, soon comes often a powerful revelation, soon comes often a powerful action, And I think even we might take a point of application and challenge on this one verse for us this morning. Uh, Could it be that our lack of devotion to prayer is but one reason why we don't so powerfully receive God's word and participate in his actions? How often do significant events in your life find a preceding season attached to them of earnest, devoted prayer? And you see as the text continues that this kind of messianic prayer meeting moves into some sort of an uh, apostolic conference as Jesus says, okay, guys, who do the crowds say that I am? And their answer is the exact same one that we would have seen last week when people are telling Herod about what the crowds say about Jesus. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, remember who who was beheaded by this point in Jesus' ministry. Others of the people say, you're Elijah, come back. Because remember, Elijah never died, and there was the Old Testament prophetic expectation that Elijah would come back according to the end of Malachi. And others say, you're just a mighty prophet who has arisen. So there was, you'll notice even in those answers, the crowds, the people there in Israel were looking for a prophet. For over four centuries, God's revealed word had been silent unto them, and they're eagerly and expectantly awaiting God to speak to them once again through a prophet. And here comes Jesus with power. Hmm, he might be John the Baptist with his head back on. He might be Elijah come down in a chariot of fire. Or maybe he's just some other prophet that we can't even remember. And we do want to say, don't we, that Jesus was and is a prophet. But he is so much more, isn't he? For look at the question that becomes personal now at the end of verse 20. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And in the original language, the you is emphatic. Everyone, every boy and girl, man and woman, must have a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is not the same thing to know truth or convictions about Jesus passed on from others. So students, there is a day coming when you will find this question asked to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? The question isn't, who do your parents, who do your grandparents, who do your teachers, who do your coaches, who do your friends say Jesus is? But who do you say Jesus is? is. So by this point in Jesus' ministry and the apostles following after Christ, Peter is the acknowledged leader of the group, always quickly and sometimes rashly speaking up for the group, but he gets it right, doesn't he, in this text? And Peter answered, according to the end of verse 20, you are the Christ of God. 
Now, kids, do you know what it means that Jesus is the Christ? Sometimes we use it so casually and so consistently that it seems as though it's just his last name. But of course, it's much more than that. It's just an English transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which just means the anointed one. Uh, Jesus is the anointed one of God, the king sent to restore all things. He is the one that's going to come back, that's sent by the Father in order to bring restoration and reconciliation to God's people. This is who Jesus is. And you need to know if you're in here this morning and you don't happen to be a Christian that this confession lies at the very center point of our faith. It's what makes us distinct from every other religion that even claims to be Christian. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became man, anointed by the Spirit to save sinners like you and me. So, we're not a cult that proclaims a person who is a con man or madman or just merely some good man. Uh, we say this is the God man who came to offer salvation to weary and needy sinners like you and me. You need to know who Jesus is, but you also need to see what Jesus must do because notice what he surprisingly says to the disciples in verse 21. And he strictly charged them and commanded them, tell this to no one. And again, you might have been with us long enough in Luke's gospel to know that Jesus did this a lot. Cast out a demon and tell that family, don't tell anybody what happened. Heal the disease. Enjoy the renewed fellowship with your almost dying son, but don't go tell people what just happened behind these closed doors. And now he tells the disciples, the Christ of God has finally arrived. Millennia-long expectation has finally reached its fulfillment, but you need to zip your mouth. You don't get to tell anyone about this. And why do you think he commands silence? I think we could say a couple things. First of which is, by this point in Israel's history, as you may know, especially in the 250 years before Christ came, there was an increasing conviction among the Israelite people that the Messiah would return and he would be a military and political figure. That he was going to kick out the bums and the enemies from the Holy Land. Gone would be the Gentiles and defeated would be the Romans. But do you see anything about that in the verses that follow? There's a misunderstanding about the Messiah's mission. And of course, the mission hasn't even come to completion. He wasn't going to come and inaugurate the kingdom just preaching the good news, casting out demons, and healing people. He came for a much more specific purpose, didn't he? Look at verse 21. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what Jesus must do. And that's what no one expected the Messiah would do. And do you sometimes come across scripture, maybe in your own devotional time, studying it with other Christians, family, worship time, and you, you find the Spirit just kind of arresting your mind on a particular word. That you, you seem to try to wring out all of the truth and application from this one given word and you actually discover that there are unsearchable riches in just one word. That's what it tells you about Jesus Christ. 
Well, I want you to see that kind of reality in that four-letter word, must. Why must Jesus endure everything that he is getting ready to endure? Well, the Bible says, doesn't it, that you and I have been born into sin. We're by nature children of wrath. From our first, first breath, we are dead in transgressions. Thus, we deserve to suffer. We deserve rejection. We deserve to be killed. We deserve to be raised at the last day into unending torment, punishment, and judgment at the hands of a righteous God. And there's nothing we can do to remedy that problem of sin. And so what did God do? Our triune God from eternity past covenanting together within the Godhead to send the Son, Jesus Christ, to what? Suffer in your place. Be rejected in your place. Die on the cross in your place. Rising again three days later. Inaugurating the kingdom unto everlasting life so that if you would but only turn from your sin and trust in what he has done on the cross, your sins are washed away. Your conscience is cleansed. You are now reconciled with God, made righteous in his sight because of what Jesus had to do. I hope you see reason to glorify and adore the Son, Jesus Christ, for his resolve. He was not coming to be a popular hero in Israel. He was not coming to bring in some sort of political empire, a golden age in the ancient Holy Land. He came on a mission of weakness, on a mission of rejection, suffering, death. But of course, God crowns that mission with the resurrection, that he was raised unto our justification. This is what he must do. And kids, I wonder earlier this week, as we've had these kind of random storms burst through the area, if maybe during the day or at night you saw the uh, sky light up with a thunderbolt of lightning, and then you know your meteorology well enough to know something else is probably going to come after that thunderbolt of lightning, or at least the bolt of lightning and it's followed by a clap of thunder. But what you need to see is this text is so surprising and shocking. How surprising and shocking is it? Do you remember Matthew's account in Matthew 16? Jesus says the Messiah is going to suffer, be rejected, he's going to be killed. And what does Peter say? May it never be, Lord. Now what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So powerful is this surprise. So shocking is this stunner that Satan doesn't want Jesus to do it. But this lightning bolt regarding what Jesus must do now gets the corresponding thunderclap of what disciples must do in the remainder of the text. For notice the requirements of discipleship in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So students, do you see the three requirements of discipleship in that one verse? First, Genuine followers of Christ, they are to deny themselves. You may have heard an old Puritan named Matthew Henry, and he said, self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school. The great reformer John Calvin said, self-denial is the sum of the Christian life. But what you need to know is that denying yourself is much more than just merely saying no to fleshly desires and passions. Although, I do think it includes that. It means something much more total 
It's renouncing the right to rule yourself. It's submitting the desires of self to the demands of the Savior. It's to take things like self-esteem, self-interest, self-improvement, self-justification, self-righteousness, and find those all as being nothing more than candles that blow out in the midst of the hurricane wind of who Christ is. You must deny yourself, Jesus says. Secondly, what does he say? You must take up your cross. Many of you know that at this time in the ancient Roman world, Crucifixion was the worst kind of execution any criminal could receive. It was full of shame. It was full of mocking. And now Jesus says, you're to take it up. Likely signaling, of course, for these original men who would have heard these commands, that the Christian life, as church history has proved over and over, hasn't it, is so often full of rejection, persecution, suffering, and even martyrdom for your devotion to Jesus Christ. It's to take the pattern of Christ's life and receive it as your own. That in our faith, the cross comes before the crown. And some of you in here are looking forward to being called into gospel ministry. Maybe you're licensed in the presbytery to preach. Maybe you're going through seminary studies. Maybe even some of you men in here have a healthy and noble ambition to serve as a deacon or a ruling elder in the church. I would want you to hear these ancient words of wisdom from a Puritan named John Flavel that a crucified style befits ministry of the crucified Savior. To minister Christ effectively is to take up your cross in humility, obedience, and repentance and follow him into whatever rejection the ministry often brings you Hardship, maybe persecution, but so often defamation of a reputation, misunderstanding, cold, hard-hearted hearts, not receiving earnest prayers and pleadings and ministry. You bear the cross as Christ did. So you see the third requirement for discipleship? It's the last one, isn't it? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now students, you can't let things like social media, Instagram, Snapchat, define what it means to follow somebody. Right? Jesus is not after fans. He is after followers. He is not after a remote relationship with you. Some sort of distant understanding of a personality. But a thriving, living, everyday communion with the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Because at this time, of course, disciples of rabbis and teachers in the Jewish culture, they just went wherever their rabbi went. Listen to whatever the rabbi would say. Try to memorize all the answers that he would offer to any question that would come their way. It was a consistent, tireless following after their leader. These are the requirements for discipleship. And notice in the following three verses that now Jesus gives reasons for discipleship. You can kind of see it if you scan your eyes through verse 24, 25, and 26. Each verse begins with this three-letter word, for. So why should you deny yourself? Why should you take up your cross and follow Christ? Well, here are three simple reasons. And know, and I want you to see this as even a, a, an act of mercy and grace from Christ because he could have ended his commission in verse 23 and his eternal authority would have been enough for us to go and do likewise. But to my non-Christian friend here this morning, he means to reason with you now and even reason with all of us so reason number one, notice verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. You see what he's doing there. He is speaking against what has always been the perspective of the world in terms of a relationship with Jesus Christ, that to place your hands in the life of Christ, the world says, is to lose all the joys of this earthly life. You're going to lose everything if you do that. When Jesus, of course, turns it upside down and says, no, to place your life in my hands is not only to find all those joys, it's to save your life. Reason number two, look at verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, he's encouraging us, calling us to count the cost. You can gain a lot of things in this life apart from Christ, but what will you find for all eternity? You've lost everything. Or you can give up something in this life, in this text, namely yourself, and you will find every eternal blessing offered unto you at the Father's right hand if you come to Christ in faith. So reason number three, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the Holy Angels. You see it, don't you, that Jesus is emphasizing that there is an eternal consequence attached to discipleship. That anyone who is ashamed in unbelief of who Jesus is and what Jesus says will find judgment at the last day. Because the world looks upon Jesus, maybe with esteem, honor as a good man who walked a life on this earth of humility and weakness. And that is very true. But they don't believe the rest of the story, that he's coming back as the unconquerable king and the just judge of the universe who will condemn people who have lived a life of convenience and comfort apart from him because they have been ashamed of who he is and what he said. They will hear at the last day those terrifying words that the other gospel writers talk about. Depart from me. I never knew you. Earlier this week I was downloading some software from the cloud for my computer and was filling out registration information that was required and is so often part of the normal things in downloading or buying stuff online these days. I was asked to check a little box that said, I agree with the terms and conditions. I had a link over that language and I clicked on it just out of mere curiosity. You know, kind of copied all of those terms and conditions into a Word document and sure it was 38 pages long of legal mumbo jumbo that I of course wasn't going to read through so I just clicked back over to the window and said yes I agree to the terms and conditions and you may have done something similar and these are the terms and conditions of following Jesus Christ but we're to think soberly about them aren't we for the requirements are total the reasons are eternal. And look at verse 27, the reward is wonderful. He says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom come. So it's a text that has vexed many people throughout the ages, caused no small amount of debate. What is Jesus actually after when he says, some of the 12 disciples aren't going to die until they behold the kingdom in all its glory? Well, it could mean that they're going to behold the inbreaking of the kingdom when Christ is resurrected from the grave. They'll see the poured out kingdom at Pentecost when the Spirit falls in Acts 2. Maybe the judgment of the kingdom when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Or it's possible, and I think in many ways more likely, given the way the gospel writers construct their narratives, 
is that he's referring to what's about to come in the next text that Lord willing will look at next week in Luke chapter 9, that three disciples are soon to go up to a mountain and see the Savior transfigured in such glory that they have tasted and seen the kingdom in all of its fullness and power. And whether or not that is right is really not the point here. What I want you to understand is that for anyone who comes after Christ, trusts in his work, defeating sin at the cross, follows him by bearing their cross every single day, you have the promise of seeing the kingdom that will come. You will behold the king in all his eternal, everlasting beauty and glory. This is what disciples must do. In 1940 and 41, Great Britain stood alone against the evil Nazi empire that was kind of casting its shadow over all Western Europe. Hope was in short supply. People thought the Church of England was increasingly irrelevant to answer the calamities and sufferings in the country and in the world at that time. And it's into that context that a professor named C.S. Lewis started broadcasting these 10-minute talks on BBC radio that were originally titled An Answer, A Clue to the Universe. Those talks were eventually compiled, republished into a best-selling book that has sold tens of millions of copies in the intervening decades titled Mere Christianity. And you see it, don't you, that this is a broadcast in our text from Jesus Christ about mere Christianity. This is who Jesus is. This is what he must do. This is who the disciples must be and what they must do. It's a call of simple Christian faith. And so as we begin to close, I just want to bring out a couple more things about this call of Christ that maybe it's easy to miss as we go through this familiar passage. First of all, there is urgency in Christ's call. Just as he must go to the cross, you must bear the cross. And do you even see the consistency of that cross bearing? Look again at verse 23. Take up your cross daily. So kids, to follow after Jesus Christ is not to make a one-time profession walking down an aisle, signing a particular card, attending a revival, a retreat, or a youth camp. It is daily submitting your life, carrying your cross under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And there is an eternal urgency to that call. There is also exclusivity in the call, isn't it? For what does Jesus say? Follow me. Not a political party, not a president, not a sports team, not a popular celebrity figure in our nation. Follow me, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Not an impressive religious teacher, not one of many prophets that was to come. He is the long-expected one. There is urgency, there's exclusivity in Christ's call even amazingly, do you see it in verse 23? There is universality in Christ's call. And here's what I mean. If you've ever heard a sermon on this passage, uh, it often tends to be with a preacher speaking boldly and hopefully clearly about the demands of discipleship. This radical commission of Jesus Christ of what it means that he's going to the cross and we have to bear our cross to follow him as well. And that kind of radical commission in the tone of which that preachers can maybe proclaim it is right. It's a forceful call. It's an 
unchanging call. It's an unswerving call. But it also is a welcoming call. Do you see how verse 23 begins? If anyone would come after me. He said to all, if anyone would come after me. If anyone would come after me. So you sit in here this morning and by his word and spirit he is calling to you. If you would come after me. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. So it doesn't matter, does it? It's a call that goes to the insider and to the outsider. To the rich and the poor. To the young and the old to the hungry and the satisfied, to the married and the single, to the happy and the hurting. He is the Christ. That's, he is the only one that can save all mankind from their sin. So have you heard his call? Are you hearing it even today? Do you know who Jesus is and what he did? and who he calls you to be by faith and repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus Christ was perfect in his obedience. We thank you that by your spirit you strengthened him in his resolve to go to the cross, to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to take our place. Father, we so often feel as though we do everything but follow Christ and deny ourselves and take up our cross. But help us be renewed by the Spirit today in strength. To be renewed by the grace of Jesus Christ that welcomes any who would come to Him. To be empowered by the Spirit for a new life of urgent mission knowing that this is an exclusive and universal call. So, Father, help us even to be a church that proclaims the centrality of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save sinners. Help us to situate our lives, our minds, our homes, the very congregation on that wonderful truth, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him who went to the cross in our place. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.